Well, today we want, we want to continue studying God's Word and, and really studying about God's Word in this, this little mini-series so we know what we believe, so we have confidence in God's Word. And as we've been doing, I'd like to start with a section of Psalm 119 that we read together, verses 137 to 144. I think that's on the screen for you. Um, let's just read it together and be listening to the words and thinking through what this says about the truth of God's Word. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. It is good to start each of these Sundays with a section on a a psalm, a really a worship song about God's Word that we have in the Old Testament. And if you caught some of the words of that, there were things like, you do this in all faithfulness, and reminder that His Word is faithful, it is true. We had words like your promise is well tried, which means that his promise has stood the test of time. It's been tested and it is true. It is always true. We had words like your righteousness is righteous forever. And and the word forever just happens to mean forever. (laughs) His righteousness is, is truth and it's righteous for all time. Your law is true. Your testimonies in 144 are righteous forever. And there's a whole lot of other things there, but one of the reasons I chose that stanza this week is because it talks about the faithfulness of Scripture. It talks about the reliability of Scripture, which is what we're looking at some evidences of. And I would bet that in this room right now, this last week, there has been occasion for you to need to rely on the faithfulness of God. That that has been a blessing at some point point this week. That that has been a rock of strength at some point this week. Because He is faithful, and He is true, and He is reliable forever, and that will never change. And because He is, His Word is. That's His revelation of Himself to us. And so we want to to continue to reassure and, and reaffirm the faithfulness of God's Word. Steve Green, president of Hobby Lobby, apparently a store where people enter the portals and never come out for hours, and they come out with baskets of stuff. It's, a, it's, it's, it's magic. But if you remember, Hobby Lobby over the last couple of years has been engaged in legal battles and, and really fighting the, the, um, some of the abortion mandate that was in the healthcare law and some of the, um, the abortion through medicine and saying, we don't want to provide this. We can't support this. We, we can't give our money to this. And, and so they had the resources to fight this and, and, uh, and, and they ended up winning, actually, and prevailing in that, which we praise God for. But Steve Green was interviewed, and he says, what gives you strength through this? Because it was a, it's been a trying time and distracting time and difficult time. And what he said was, I made a commitment to be in God's Word every day. You know, you expect some huge words of wisdom. Actually, they are huge words of wisdom. But, you know, the, all these things, this whole support system, he said, I made it a point to every day be in God's Word. And that's how I got through the last few years. 
I love stories like that, stories that remind us of the power of God's Word, the importance of God's Word. This morning we're going to continue sort of in Ron's classroom and we'll be talking through some of the evidences. And, and I'm calling this the preponderance of evidence because if you remember last week we talked about preponderance means the weight of the evidence or we add evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence to show us that the Bible is true. And actually many of these things we're talking about today are things we could share with a non-Christian, a neighbor or a co-worker to say this is why I believe the Bible's true. And because these are evidences that some of them are within Scripture, some are outside of Scripture, that show us the reliability of Scripture. And so we'll be looking about how we how these evidences stack up. Now, do we need these evidences? No. We know the truth of God's Word. We, we, we believe God when He says this is His Word. But it is helpful for us as we discuss others and engage our minds in this process. Last week, we looked at evidence about the author that God would want to be known to His people, and He's definitely capable of preserving His Word and passing it on. He's omnipotent. He can do that. We looked at the second evidence, evidence about the nature of the Bible, and that its uniqueness coupled with its unity, and we looked at some of the stats there. It is by far the most unique book, but yet it is unified around one theme with no errors and no contradictions. Amazing. And so that's part of how we know it's true. And, and if this was working last week, I would have been adding rocks in this bucket every time. And, and, and the weight of, of the evidence would become... Don got it working this week, so um, we'll have that. The third evidence we looked at was the internal testimony. What does Scripture say about itself? And my goal of that is we just read two pages of Scripture where Scripture claims to be God's Word. It claims to be inspired. And it, it, it was... To me, that was a blessing last week, just to hear what God's Word says about itself. You know, part of that that we didn't, weren't able to get to last week is does the writing content and style support that accuracy? And, and if you think about Scripture, and this is just sort of a, a side fun little thing, but there, there are things in the Bible that if you were making this stuff up, you would never, never put in Scripture, right? Uh, and and there, there are things, so, so if, I'm, if I'm making up a story about myself and, and I'm sharing it with people, i got to tell you, I'm the hero. And, and, and this hero isn't doing much wrong, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be grand, but we just don't see that in, in the Bible. The writers include all the embarrassing details of, about themselves. Um, there are things like women are the first witnesses of the resurrection that in that culture would not have happened. And, and please, I'm not saying anything about women's ability today, but in that culture, they weren't considered as reliable of a, of a witness. And so you would never put them as the, the witnesses if you were writing fiction. But Jesus was showing the value of every human being and showing the value of the women that followed him. The explanation of, of the resurrection by the Jews, the stolen body. Would you have put that in there when anyone that read it could have just gone and looked at the tomb and, and, and found whether it was empty or not? Or they could have checked these stories out? They wouldn't have. You know, the disciples wrote that they often didn't understand what Jesus was saying. If I'm writing it, man, I would have been tracking with Jesus the whole time. Sometimes the disciples are presented as uncaring They fell asleep twice when Jesus asked them to pray for him. They're rebuked. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Not what I would put in my memoirs. Paul is rebuked. Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians. They show cowardly behavior. Peter denies Christ three times. The disciples disappear at the cross. 
Their doubt is recorded. Their negative comments about Jesus. And they left in the demanding statements by Jesus. You just read the Sermon on the Mount. And and what Jesus says there is extraordinarily demanding. If you lust, you've committed adultery. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Do not store up treasures on earth. These are all things that point to the reliability of Scripture because if you're making up a book to be popular, you would not have included any of those things. Names and dates are used that could have easily been checked out at the time. And on and on and on. But that third evidence was the internal testimony, the testimony of Scripture itself. Today I want to look at five more and we'll try to buzz through them quickly. Number four is corroborating evidence. Corroborating evidence. The testimony of other eyewitnesses and the early church supported the historicity of the Bible. That means if you were to ask others and look at some of the writings of the others, it supports what the Bible says. It supports the the history. Now, going back to your school days, some of you are still there writing research papers. but, But on research papers, what kind of sources did they want? I'm going to assume you just said primary sources, because that's the right answer. You you want to go back to primary sources, not secondary sources or hearsay. You know, if if your friend comes up to you and says, I heard from a friend who heard from another friend that so-and-so said this, don't believe it. It's gone through too many stages. And so we want to look at primary sources in this this particular um, piece of evidence. And so we look for eyewitnesses. If you remember, that's what Luke did. And when we looked at Luke 1, 1 through 4, he said, I asked people. I asked people that were there. I found eyewitnesses. And this is what they said. And so that increases the reliability. The Bible was written by and written to people who were primary witnesses. By people that actually witnessed it, written to people who could have refuted it if it wasn't true. And the Bible was being circulated while these eyewitnesses were still alive. In Acts 2, 22, I'll just read a couple of, of verses out of Acts because the, the, um, the author of Acts and the, the speakers there are, are using this as one of their evidences. In Acts 2, 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And and we can gloss over that verse, but if you look at it from an evidentiary standpoint, Peter's saying, he did this in front of you. You saw it. If you didn't, Joe next door did, and you can go ask him. And so he's appealing there to the truth of the witnesses that were around it. Paul does the same thing with Festus in Acts 26. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're nuts. Or you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And listen to this, this this corroborating evidence. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. So if people say the Bible's just some set of myths... Some set of fables. This goes back to that argument from the world, which is the the argument on that side. We can say, well, actually, it was written and circulated while people were alive that witnessed these things. In fact, the authors themselves appealed to witnesses and to the truth of the events and said, go check it out. 
Go check it out. You know, we have the, the witness of the early church as they developed a compilation of which books should be in the New Testament. And, and the, the Old Testament was already, already done by then. We'll talk about canon next week, um, which simply re- means which books should be in God's Word. And the early church, their witnesses, these books are the ones that were God's Word because these were the ones that were true. In the, the early church fathers in the second and third century, and so this is right after the generation, after the events of the New Testament, the, the church fathers quoted the New Testament extensively and called it Scripture. And so this goes to their testimony. In fact, according to some, all but 11 New Testament verses appear in the writings of the early church fathers listed as Scripture. That is how sure we are that that is the book that they considered Scripture. And their witness says this was true. This was Scripture. It was often quoted within a generation, maybe two generations, of the original events by disciples, by people who were studying under those people. Irenaeus, Ignatius, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, which would have been really cool. Clement, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and it goes on and on and on. The evidence of eyewitnesses in the early church supports the historicity of the Bible. So all of those different things would be different pieces of evidence, each author, each witness. And so we end up with a couple more pieces of evidence over here. We'll do three for three of the authors. And it's just a little bit more weight of evidence. Number five. Number five is sort of fun. External evidence. This is the testimony of other writers that corroborates the Bible inasmuch as they speak of biblical events. And so the number four was friendlies, right? People that were following Christ, eyewitnesses of this or the early church. Number five would be people that were not believers. Do they support the truth of, of Scripture? Would they say that, that the Bible, and especially with these, the New Testament is true? Because wouldn't some other writers have mentioned Jesus if he was true? Wouldn't some other writers have mentioned Christianity? Well, they did. They did. And we forget this. And this is a great conversation with skeptics because you can appeal to what other writers have said. Josephus is the most popular. He was a Jewish historian, not a believer. And he was a Pharisee. But he references Jesus and the other events of the Bible. He references the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, and you would expect that from a Pharisee, the law, prophets, and and the writings, and and he calls them Scripture. He also references people that were willing to die for Scripture because they believed it so much. Many of the details of the Old and New Testament are in his writing. He talks about James, the brother of Jesus. He talks about John the Baptist and his martyrdom. These are not made-up things in the Gospel. He talks about Jesus. And, And... Most manuscripts, there's some debate over this, but most manuscripts have him writing this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. 
You have external evidence from someone who wasn't a believer that, that lists the events of the New Testament. These aren't just myths. They aren't, these aren't just this fables. Thallus, who wrote about 52 AD, mentions the darkness after the crucifixion. And he's trying to make sense of it in his writings. He says, ah, maybe it was a solar eclipse. Another writer at the time interacts with him and says, well, that's impossible. It was a full moon. And the point is, the darkness after the crucifixion happened. And we have external testimony to that. The Talmud confirms the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. Later, the Babylonian Talmud in 550 AD mentions Jesus and His crucifixion. There are many, many others. There's a historian named Tacitus who was a a famous historian. He wrote the, um, the Annals, they called them. And... He includes a biography of Nero. And he's talking about Nero and the fire in Rome. And if you remember in 64 AD, there was a huge fire in Rome due to Nero and some of what he was doing. He needed a scapegoat, so he blamed the Christians. And that started really the persecution of the Christians and you know all the, the horror stories we hear of what he did to believers. But it's interesting. Tacitus mentions this. And he says this, Neither human effort nor the emperor's generosity nor the placating of the gods ended the scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered by Nero. Therefore, to put down that rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Suppressed for a time, the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, the origin of this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things horrible and shameful from everywhere come together and become popular. (laughs) Not a friendly to Scripture. Not a friendly to Christ. Did you catch what he confirmed? Jesus lived, he was called the Christ, and he was executed by Pilate. Guys, this is not a a book of made-up stories. This is history. It actually happened. And we have proof upon proof upon proof. Norman Geisler, Mike Wilkins, J.P. Moreland, um, Josh McDowell, some of them got together and put together a list of things we know are true from external writings, writings from people that are not friendly to Christianity. We know that Jesus was a Jewish teacher. He lived a wise and virtuous life. Many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms. He was rejected by Jewish leaders. He was crucified by Romans under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius at Passover. He was believed by his disciples to have been raised from the dead three days later. The tomb where he laid was definitely empty. Despite his shameful death, his followers who believed he was still alive spread beyond Palestine so there, that there were multitudes in Rome by A.D. 64. There had to be, because how could he blame people that weren't there? He was believed to be and worshipped as a deity by his followers. All of that's outside of Scripture. It's in Scripture, but all of that's confirmed by these writings outside of Scripture. This is a huge piece of evidence for someone that, that won't let you bring Scripture into the discussion. Because you can say all those things about Jesus from documents that they think are true. This, I'm hoping, just reaffirms our love for God's Word, our our faithfulness to God's Word, our confidence in God's Word. So external evidences. We'll add a couple more for those. 
few more because we have different, a variety of different writings. And the weight... It's okay. We're okay. The weight of the evidence builds. It builds. So then we get to the manuscript evidence. And, and we've talked a little bit, we've talked a little bit technically about this, how we don't have the actual scroll that Paul wrote on or some of these authors, but we have documents that are very close to that and that we know are reliable copies. And some will say, well, how do you know? You know, someone could have made that up. Some scribe could have, have had a bad meal the night before and written something down that was funky, but no, we know, and, and some of the ways that we know are through the manuscript evidence. The biblical texts we have are more reliable to the original than any other historical document. And I don't want to pull any punches, any other historical document. No other historical document on the face of this planet matches the reliability of Scripture. And I'm not saying that as a, as a pastor. I'm saying that from the aspect of studying the manuscript evidence. So, so in manuscript evidence, you say, well, what makes a document reliable? What, how do we know the historicity of a document? And there's certain tests that they use. One of them is how reliable are the copies? What was the method of making copies? But to tell how reliable are the copies, you ask how many manuscripts have survived. Okay? So if we have one manuscript, that is, that it, we're less sure of that than if we have 20 manuscripts that all say the same thing, right? So 20 different manuscripts saying the same thing gives a higher level of confidence than one or two. Make sense? Then we look at, okay, how far from the original are they? So if, if I discover a manuscript that's a thousand years from the Old Testament or, or from writing, that is less of a chance of being reliable than something that's t- 40 years from the time of writing. Does that make sense? And, and so I, I know this, is, this one's a little more technical, but it's really fun. Just bear with me. Um, and so then we look at all these manuscripts and how consistent are they? And if we have 20, 30 manuscripts that are within 40 years of the original and they all say the same thing, then historians would say there is a huge, huge likelihood that that is reliable. The statistical chances are, are, are amazing. We would call that reliable. Well, let's look at some of the documents of the time. Josh McDowell will say this as we look at it. The more manuscripts we have and the closer the manuscripts are to the original, the more we are able to determine where copyist errors happened and which copies reflect the original. So we're looking at the reliability of the copies or the, 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 the text that we have. And so we want to look at some historical documents. And I'm going to... Um, we'll, we'll put up some of these in a minute. And the history of Herod, Herodotus. It's considered a reliable document. History. It was written about 480 BC, so before Christ. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. Okay, so it's written 480 BC, written 900 AD. That's 1325 years away. And historians feel that this is reliable and this is accurate. We have 15 copies of this. That's pretty good, right? 15 copies, only 1325 years away. We go to some others. The history of, of Thucydides. Scholars don't doubt the authenticity here. Again, we only have eight manuscripts. They're dated about 1300 years after they were written. Plato. Anyone study Plato in school? Presented as what we have is what he wrote, right? Plato was written in 400 BC, 
Our earliest copy is 900 A.D., 1,300 years after it was written. We consider this absolutely what he wrote. We have seven copies, historical copies of Plato. I, I know today you can go online, there's all kinds of copies. When they talk about copies, they're talking historical copies or, or old manuscripts of Plato. Aristotle, again, presented as real, written about 343 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 1100 A.D., about 1443 years, approximately. We have 49 manuscripts. So that's a little bit more likelihood that it's reliable because we have 49. As we go through this, I will put up the next chart. There we go. Whoops. So you can see some of the ones I'm going through. And, and this is years from the original. Caesar wrote a history of the Gaelic Wars, written between 58 and 50 B.C. Copies we have are about 900 years later. We have 10 copies. It's not questioned. Josephus, one of the ones I mentioned, talks of the Jewish wars, historian in the first century. We have nine Greek copies 900 years later. We have one Latin copy three to 400 years later. Considered true. Tacitus, the guy that wrote about um, Nero and the Annals, famous historian, Roman senator, orator, ethnographer, um, one of the best of the Roman historians. We have three manuscripts 800 years later, and we consider them history. Homer's Iliad, Homer's Iliad probably had that 10th, 11th grade in high school, and you loved it, your favorite thing ever. This has the, the, the second most manuscripts of all the historical documents we have, 643. So what we have is, is very likely what he wrote, written about 800 B.C., but our texts are much later than that. Our first complete text is about 400 B.C., 400 years later. And so if you just looked at years from the original, okay, so, so Homer's Iliad is, and if you look at some of the other, other texts, it's usually dated a little bit further away, but all these are a variety of closeness to when it was, was written. These are all considered history. Well, what about the Bible? The Bible, we have parts of the Bible dated within 40 years of when it was written. The fragments of the Bible within 40 years was written. 90 A.D., we have parts of the Gospel of John that are dated anywhere from 90 to 114 A.D., but a lot of scholars think that's about 90 A.D. We have fragments of other books, 130, 150 A.D., 200 A.D., 170 A.D. We have full books of the Bible within 100 years of when they were written. We have whole manuscripts of the entirety of the Bible within 250 years of when it was written. They're still finding things. Last year, they found a fragment of the Gospel of Mark that was within 100, 150 years of when Mark was written. And it was the, the oldest fragment now that we have of Mark and brought new reliability to that. Every time they find one of these, what's amazing, it matches. It matches. There is yet to be a find that they go back and they have to change the Bible based on it because they match. And that's amazing. That is unheard of. Unheard of. They just found 200 more biblical manuscripts back in 1975, which isn't that long ago. Trust me. <laughs> Some of you are like, I wasn't even born then. I know. Um, <laughs> they, 
They, they were, there was a fire at St. Catherine's Monastery near where they think Mount Sinai would have been. And in St. George's Tower, they uncovered 200 more biblical manuscripts. 90 of those were the New Testament. 50,000 fragments of the Bible were sealed in boxes. They matched. This is stunning. If someone says, oh, I'm not sure the Bible, what we have, the, the manuscripts of the Bible are true. Huh. Let me just put the Bible up there. The Bible is by far the closest in years from the original. Do you see that? And if we go to number of copies, okay, we have all these number of copies. I mentioned the more copies you have, the more reliable it is. And Homer's Iliad by far is the, is the best with its number of copies. All these are considered absolute history by, by any class you'll take. Do you know that we have about 25,000 ancient full manuscripts of the New Testament. Did you catch what I said? 25,000. We have over 30,000 more partial copies of the New Testament. We have 5,600 New Testament manuscripts in Greek dated back to these dates. It is amazing the testimony we have to Scripture. So if you looked at the number of copies of the Bible compared to these books it would look something like this. Homer's Iliad, which is amazingly attested to, is that little, little dot next to the Bible. Chalice, I don't know if you, any of you um, read Chalice or some of the things that he does. He does um, One of the things he does in, a, in a, addition to his blog is he puts infographics of different um, scriptural things. And this is really hard to, to see. I know it was hard to see. Just look at the blue dots, Okay. This is the number of manuscripts we have of these. And the top one there is, is Tacitus and then Herodotus and Plato and Caesar and Homer's Iliad. These are the manuscripts we have for these things, right? So then he starts to compare that to the Bible. And, and for me, the visual helped. So then we have the Bible, the New Testament. The problem is that's not the whole chart. Here's the whole chart. I could add the whole whole bucket of rocks on this one. Some say the Bible was a collection of folklore that had developed and, and exaggerated over time. The manuscripts we have are old enough to know there wasn't enough time for that to happen. They're written in the same generation. And we have copy after copy after copy. Bruce Metzger, a scholar in this, said the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works of antiquity. We have far better and more reliable texts of the New Testament than any other ancient work whatsoever. A couple authors said that. And so really, if you, if you can't accept the text of the Bible as accurate to the original, you can't accept any other historical document as accurate. Because we have far more proof that what we have is the original. There's some other things that we could talk about. Uh, even the care to copy it. And so the Old Testament was copied by hand by scribes. They didn't have scanners back then. They didn't take pictures with their phones. They, they copied it by hand. And some of the instructions from the Talmud of how to copy it are, are just amazing. They were required to prepare a parchment and dedicate a parchment that was clean. And that's important because if it's not clean, you could get little markings and stuff that could change some of the text or, or some of the words, especially in a pictorial language like Hebrew. Um, it, it would be real easy for that to happen. 
They had rules about the ink, about columns and lines. They were not allowed to copy any words from memory. They must use an authentic manuscript. They must pronounce every word aloud as he copied so he made sure it was right and someone else could hear and verify. Every time the scribe wrote Yahweh, the Hebrew word for God, he was required to wipe his pen clean and wash his entire body in reverence for God and his word. This is how seriously they took copying Scripture. This is why the, the, the copies are reliable. The power of God, but, but man working with that to make sure. Within 30 days, every scroll was examined and checked for accuracy. If there was even one error on a sheet, it was destroyed. If mistakes on three separate pages of, of a copy, the entire manuscript was destroyed. Not only every word and paragraph were counted, but every letter was counted. And it had to match the counts of the original. Would you love that job? I'm counting every letter in the Old Testament. If someone could do that before next Sunday. And and I I can remember studying in seminary and our Hebrew Bible had some of these counts at the end of each book. I'm like, who does this? They did this to ensure the accuracy of the copies because if the count wasn't the same, the copy wasn't the same. We can go on and on. We could talk Dead Sea Scrolls and and we just can't talk about it all today because I want to get through seven and eight of our evidences. But the historicity, the manuscript evidence is huge that we have a Bible we can trust and we have a Bible that's true. And so we add in a little bit more evidence. The one side saying the Bible is not true, the evidence that says the Bible is true. Number seven, we get to evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Now, this is really powerful. we, We can verify when the Old Testament was written. We can verify that things were written before they actually happened. That's really cool. You know, yesterday at the Iwana Games, I'm going to use you, AJ, here for, for a minute. AJ, Pastor AJ walks in, and I text him and say, I am sure, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was prophesying, I didn't use that word, but I am sure that we are going to get second or greater. <laughs> and he was like, you better check your expectations. <laughs> um, because how could someone prophesy that? Now, in that case, I had looked at the program, and I knew there were only two teams on our circle competing. And, and I, I may have had a logical advantage there. But if I had said that a week ago, not knowing any of those details, that would have been more powerful, right? And, and congratulations to our Awana team. They won and, and took the championship. And so as we look at prophecies, it matters what was said before and if it was fulfilled. That adds to the reliability, the power of Scripture. For instance, prophecies in, in, in Psalm 22, and I want to read some of these. Psalm 22, 12 through 18. And Psalm 22 is, is considered a, a song about the Messiah, prophecies of the Messiah and the Messiah's crucifixion. And in verses 12 through 18 of Psalm 22, we read this. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like, like a ravening and roaring lion. And then listen. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, which is what happens on a cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my, my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Speaking of the thirst, you lay me in the dust of death. 
For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can, speaking of the, the nails, I can count all my bones and we can look and we know that no bones of Jesus were actually broken, which was rare. They didn't break the bones of his legs. That's why that little fact in the crucifixion narrative is so important. It matches prophecy. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. How do you predict that a thousand years before it happens? Unless this is God's word. This was predicted before crucifixion on a cross was even invented. This is amazing. In Micah 5.2, the prophet predicts that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And, and if you've ever been to the living nativity, you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Right here. No. <laughs> Isaiah 7.14 predicts that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. And that's what happened. Zechariah 12.10 predicts that he would be pierced. As Christians, we sort of live in this world that we expect prophecy to come true. We expect the Bible to be true. But these are astounding claims to happen a thousand years, 700 years, 400 years before they actually happened. This is amazing. We have, we have a number of prophecies, but one statistician, and I love this illustration, I've used it before, one statistician said, if, just, if we just took eight of those prophecies, just eight prophecies that we guarantee, because we have copies of the Old Testament, we can guarantee they were written before the New Testament, before the events of Jesus, take eight of them, the odds of all eight coming true is one in 10 to the 17th. Or one in, and I don't even know whether that's 100 million, trillion, I, I don't know. One with 17 zeros after it. That's the odds of just eight prophecies being fulfilled. And that's hard to understand. And the illustration that one author uses to help us understand that is, is if we took that many silver dollars, 10 to the 17th, if we took that many silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, right on top of everyone that's moved there and, and every, no, um, no I, I love those of you that are in Texas that are listening. Um, we love you. But if you, if you took these silver dollars, this many silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas, they will cover the state of Texas two feet deep. I've driven across Texas. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's 10 to the 17th. They'll cover it two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars with a color, maybe red or blue. Mark one, stir it into the whole mass. So just stir up Texas. It is somewhere in there over all the state. Blindfold a man, tell him he can travel as far as he wishes. And when he stops, he must pick up one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? That's the chance of just eight prophecies about Jesus coming true. Isn't that cool? This is the morning I get to be a math nerd and it's just, this is fun. Now, let's say we considered 48 prophecies of the Messiah. The, the, the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 157th. I, I, don't have a, I, I didn't hit 0 157 times, sorry. It would fill the screen. 157 zeros after that 1 would be the odds that just 48 of the prophecies about the Messiah were fulfilled. 
but yet we can study them and know that every single one came true. This is amazing. This is an argument and evidence from fulfilled prophecy. And again, I'm not going to put 10 to the 17th stones in here. We'll just put a few. Last one I want to mention, because I know I'm running out of time. Archaeological and historical evidence. I mean, doesn't research contradict the Bible I've heard? You know, we haven't found some of the places in the Bible. There's a whole argument about whether Jewish people, the, the Israelites were ever in Israel. and, and all, Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Archaeologists are showing, Christian and non-Christian, by the way, are showing discovery after discovery that reflects and supports the biblical accounts. A, a Jewish archaeologist, so not favorable to Christianity, he wrote, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Ever is a strong word there. But he's saying there has been no discovery that has contradicted the Bible. Every year, more and more of these supposed discrepancies fall. Jericho. We studied Jericho in Joshua 6, right? Joshua 6.20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. You know the story, right? They marched around the walls and on the seventh day, people shouted, trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And for a long time, archaeologists said, well, that, that's not true. We, we can't find evidence for that. In 1936, they, as they were, they were doing digs at Jericho, they found some really strange things about Jericho. It's one of the only sites where the walls of a besieged city, an attacked city, it's the only one they have where the walls fell out rather than in. Almost like something supernatural was accomplishing that. They did find one little section, though, a short stretch of the lower city wall that did not fall like everywhere else. Rahab, probably. We don't know. But we know in Scripture one section didn't fall. Mud bricks were found at the bottom of the knoll that the city was built on. The city was built on a hill. And you might say, mud bricks? I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Here's the thing. The Jericho had two walls. It had a retaining wall at the bottom of the hill. It's built up on a hill for defensibility. It has a retaining wall at the bottom and some earth and stuff between, sometimes some houses in between. And then the top of the hill was a mud brick wall. And so for them to find mud bricks and burned mud bricks down at the bottom of this wall, the only way that happens is if it falls out and something catastrophic had to have caused that because it had to get all the way outside of this bottom wall. They found that the city had been burned. And and in the Bible, it says they burned the city. In fact, they found um, grain storage jars that were burnt that showed small amounts of grain indicating a, a really short siege of the city. You might say seven days. That's just one example of, of time after time of thing after thing that is proven. Um, I, as we go through this section, just a short little blurb. We're going to Israel again next year. We'd love to take you. We visit a lot of these sites. And it is amazing what that does to help you understand the reliability of Scripture. The ark. And we've talked about this in our Is Genesis History class, our Beyond Is Genesis History, in our, our community group. 
Um, but it's interesting, almost all ancient cultures have a flood story. The Bible's the only one with the details, with the dates and the genealogies. But the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Sumerians, they all report a flood. In fact, the Sumerian king list from 2100 B.C. divides itself into two categories. Those kings who re- ruled before a great flood and those who ruled after it. But I'm sure it didn't happen. You know, as we've looked at that evidence, we found fossils of fish on mountains, whale fossils going through fossil layers. We have sedimentary layers that cover the entire continent of North America and then extend to Europe and other continents. The only way that that happens is with a massive catastrophic flood that is laying the layer at one time. Another one that that I love to talk about, I was watching one night National Geographic Channel. I was probably bored. And they were doing a special on Niagara Falls, and they were talking about the erosion of Niagara Falls. And we can put this one up. I think this is the next picture I have. There we go. Hard to see. And Niagara Falls is eroding. Now they're controlling the flow, so it erodes about one foot every year or or more. But before, it was eroding about 10 feet a year. So this is 1678, where the border was. This is today. This is the Horseshoe Falls of Niagara Falls. This is today. Well, it was 2000. 11, I think that says. And it's still receding, right? And, and they have a rate of this. And it's interesting because they've done studies. And if you ex- extrapolate out the rate of erosion, you get to the shelf. They, they have a Niagara, Niagara shelf there. You get to that shelf about seven to 8,000 years ago. Couldn't have been older than that. And so something happened that created these falls seven to eight, nine thousand years ago. This is what National Geographic is willing to say. Well, that was the flood. Something had to have created that shelf and started the massive water runoff at that point in time. What we have is corroborated by what's actually out there, by discoveries. For many, t- many years, the existence of the Hittites was questioned. Genesis 23 says that Abraham buried Sarah in the cave of Machpelah, which he purchased from a Hittite. And, and people couldn't find any evidence of Hittites. They're like, see, the Bible's wrong. It's making up people. I mean, Hittites, really? A century ago, we didn't know anything about Hittites outside of the Old Testament. And critics would just use that to say it's not true. But in 1906, interestingly enough, Archaeologist digging east of Turkey, Ankara, Turkey, discovers runes of an ancient Hittite capital. I'm not going to say all the current names because I can't pronounce half of those. They also found a vast collection of Hittite historical records which showed an empire flourishing in the mid-second millennium B.C., right about the time that Abraham was going through the area. And boom, another another questionable thing about the Bible falls. Hezekiah's tunnel. Second Kings 20, 20 reads this. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? This is Second Kings 20, 20. Well, Hezekiah's tunnel is a real thing. And they, they found that. In fact, there's Pastor Andrew. You can barely see his back as he's going through a tunnel. And what they found is that this tunnel was, and they found an inscription that's coming up 
where Hezekiah built this tunnel while they were under siege. And they dug 1,750 feet with teams from both sides and they met in the middle without GPS. This is someone else you may recognize. Sorry, Heather, I warned you. (laughs) Heather's coming out of of Hezekiah's tunnel. um, And this is the inscription they found, the actual inscription they found. Well, this is a replica, but they found an inscription in there that talks about how he built it and it matched what the Bible said. Are you feeling the weight of this? I mean, I, I could go on and on and on. Hotsor, another place we visited. It's interesting because Hotsor is in the northern kingdom, a fortified city. And um, we know that Joshua conquered Hotsor. And it's one of the few cities that the Bible says in Joshua 11, verses 10 to 11, Joshua turned back at that time, captured Hotsor, struck its king with the sword. And it goes on to say, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed and he burned Hotsor with fire. And for, for a long time, ah, they don't burn cities with fire. We don't find that that much. And then in the excavations of Hotsor, they found an ash layer. At one point, about the time of Joshua, because they, they date these, and, and this they could do carbon-14 dating, about the time of Joshua, the entire city was leveled and burned. Almost like what the Bible said. Isn't that cool? It, th- this one has a little more of a story. They, they found actually the top layer in, in dating. They said, ah, oh, that's a little bit after Joshua. And um, in the Bible, it also says Deborah. And in Judges, they came back through Hotzor and it got destroyed again. Um, just an awful place to live, I guess. <laughs> and, and as they dug down further, they found a second ash layer that was definitively dated to Joshua's time. It's like, oh, well, so much for that. Um, just for fun, a couple other things I need to end. This is the tribute penny that they have found in digs that probably was the penny that Jesus held up, not this exact one, but the, the, the style of the penny that Jesus held up and said, render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. Because he said, whose image is on this? Caesar's. The Bible didn't make that up. That coin actually existed. In studying Luke, famous historians and archaeologists who were skeptical to Christianity finally concluded Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed along with the greatest of historians. Paul mentions the city treasurer Erastus in one of the cities he was in. And people, ah, we don't know him. They found an inscription from Erastus. We could go on and on and on. But I'm out of time. All that to say, the proofs that the Bible is true are amazing, and they add up. I'm just going to put two more in. Actually, we did, what, five or six? Let's have some fun. The evidence is incredibly one-sided that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is true. Again, today is a little different because a lot of these proofs aren't necessarily things you'd prove to someone out of the Bible. They're more about the Bible. But may they help us understand the reliability and the faithfulness of the Bible, which should point back to the faithfulness of our God. At the beginning, I said, undoubtedly, most of us in this room have had occasion, even this week or this month, to, to need the faithfulness of God and His Word. Village, God's Word is faithful. It is true. 
no matter which angle we look at it. I want to end by reading some verses. We started this section last week reading. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will last. It is trustworthy. It is forever. It accomplishes his purposes. It's powerful. Don't doubt it. And like we challenged you last week and the week before, if you don't doubt it, if you believe it's true, are you going to open it and read it this week? Are we going to trust it and need it for life? Or are we just going to say it's true? That's nice, but I don't need it. May we build our life on his word. May we build our life on who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord God, our Father, You are worthy. Lord, you are worthy. Your word is worthy of being read, of being followed. Lord, because that is your revelation of yourself to us. And may we not neglect that, Lord. Lord, as we worship you, we praise you that you are faithful. We praise you that you are reliable, that you will not let us down. But Lord, you are God who loves us, who's revealed yourself to us, who has saved us. And Lord, if there's anyone in here that hasn't met you, that hasn't chosen to follow you, help them to know that through Jesus Christ there is eternal life because he came and lived a perfect life and died for our sins. And Lord, we owe you everything for that. We owe you our worship because you are worthy. Thank you, God, for your word, for your plan of salvation, for your son, for your revelation of yourself. In your name, amen.